All right, if you, if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Our passage is verses 16 through 34. Uh, if you're relatively new to church, this is the uh, part of the service where someone like me spends uh, several minutes uh, reading and explaining a text. And... Um, the text we have today is uh, really one of the, the most interesting in all of the New Testament, and you'll see why, I think, in just a few moments. So listen now to Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Everybody has a morning routine. 
You wake up, maybe take a shower or have some coffee and more coffee and more coffee. You open up your Bible, maybe you check the news, eat some eggs, iron your clothes, get dressed and get going. Right? We all have a morning routine. Now, people have always had morning routines, and a routine in the first century for a citizen of the Roman Empire would have been dif different from our morning routine in one particular way. If you were an upper-class Roman citizen, you would wake up and make your way in your home to a small, wood-framed, miniature temple situated probably just outside of your bedroom. It's called the lorarium, a lorarium, because it would house the lares, the household spirits who protect your family. And the, the lares would be represented probably by a couple of little figurines that might look like little dancing maidens. And then those little figurines would be standing next to probably a couple of little miniature statues, statuettes that would be more famous gods like Mercury or Venus. And in the middle of all of these little idols in your lorarium, there would probably sit a goblet. And every morning, as you were wiping the sleep out of your eyes, you would put your little offerings into that goblet and burn a little incense and recite some prayers that you memorized long ago. And whether you truly or deeply believed that what you were doing at your lorarium really mattered, why risk it? Why tempt fate? Right? A little insurance never hurt anybody. Now, that's morning idolatry in the Roman Empire in general. In the Roman Empire, there was no city more committed to various forms of idolatry than Athens, Greece. And while on his second missionary journey, where Paul is being chased by an angry group of Jewish leaders who track him down to the Macedonian city of Berea, and where his new Berean friends literally ship him off to Athens, and there he is alone in this great city waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. And Athens, in the first century, though it had lost a little bit of its ancient glory, was still a grand city. It remained a preeminent center of culture, and intellectual achievement. Perhaps if you combined New York's bustling art scene with uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts and, and Harvard's uh, academic environment, you, you'd have a city comparable to ancient Athens. But I need one more comparison to really give you the picture of what Athens would be like. You need to sprinkle in a little bit of Las Vegas as well. All right, it's, really, you, you can't walk past you can't walk down the streets of Las Vegas without being sort of gripped by the culture of casino gambling. And you can't walk through the streets of Athens without seeing and, and smelling uh, idolatry. You've heard of the, the, the Parthenon, the building on the Acropolis. 
which housed the huge temple with a golden ivory statue, not a statuette, but a statue of Athena. Well, statues and temples and altars like this littered every corner and every alley in the city of Athens, gold and silver and marble and, and ivory-carved idols created by the greatest sculptors, the greatest artists in all of Greece. And then, like Las Vegas, it was a city of sexual immorality. The worship of gods and the worship of the human body, with all of its pleasures, went hand in hand in Athens. And so, so Paul had certainly been around the block. He had seen pagan idolatry in other cities, but he had never seen anything quite like Athens. Now Luke records, Luke is the author of Acts, and he records three particularly important messages that Paul delivered in the book of Acts. Now, one is the message we read about so long ago from Acts chapter 13, where Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia, and there, uh, obviously in the synagogue, Paul is addressing uh, a Jewish audience, and he presents Jesus as the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Very important message. If we were to fast forward to Acts chapter 20, we have a lot of a message that Paul gave to a, a gathering of, of elders in the church in Ephesus. And there we have a wonderful introduction to pastoral ministry. So uh, pastors and elders have been gleaning wisdom from Acts 20 and Paul's message to them for so many years. But the third really important message that we have of Paul in Acts is right in our passage in Acts chapter 17, because here is Paul at the Areopagus talking to a Gentile audience, to men and women without a biblical worldview, probably with very little understanding of the Old Testament. And so we might, in fact, even call this audience secular. So that day, in the midst of the Areopagus, Paul spoke to the most educated and skeptical leaders in the world. Now, how does Paul address an audience like this? Uh, and how do we, Christians today, bear witness to Christ in a secular society? Well, that's the question that I want to answer in this message today. How do we bear witness to Christ in a secular society? In a society that, if we're going to be honest, I think most of us would say sort of looks down the nose at Christians. Uh, who would say, well, how in the world can you believe that? And maybe they would say, you know, it's one thing to go to church and to do your rituals. People have done that throughout the ages. But we don't really believe it. It's changing your life too drastically. How do you bear witness to Christ in a secular society like this? I have four answers. I have four answers. I'm not going to give them to you all at once, but here's the first answer. First, cultivate a zeal for God's glory. Cultivate a zeal for God's glory. Look at verse 16 again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now notice Paul is alone. As usual, he goes to the local synagogue, and that's where he begins to speak, presumably doing what he had done in other cities where there were synagogues. But Luke doesn't linger there. He mentions that Paul then went to the marketplace, and in Athens, the marketplace wasn't just a place where you would, you know, buy stuff. It's a place where you would exchange ideas. It was a marketplace of ideas. And Paul is engaged by and engages the philosophers, in particular, a couple schools of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics, verse 18. So Athens is a strange city. Right? On one hand, it reeked of the, uh, the, the, the idols and the altars and the temples, right? the symbols of culture deeply committed to this pantheon of, of gods embraced by the Greeks and the Romans, right? So again, you've got the Las Vegas side of the city. But, but mixed in all of that, you've got this incredibly elitist, intellectual part of the city, a home of famous philosophers like Plato and, and Aristotle. So, so the Epicureans, we know that the Epicureans believed in the gods, kind of, they didn't put much stock in them. They didn't see these gods as saviors. The Epicureans believed that the world is hard and that people need salvation. But the Epicureans believed that deliverance comes from detachment. Seek pleasure, they said, in the little things. A lot of times when we, well, when some people hear about Epicureans, they think of just unbridled pleasure. Well, they, they did promote pleasure, pleasure in moderation, pleasure in the little things. You know, detach yourself from overdoing it. At the risk of oversimplifying, the motto of the Epicureans might be keep calm and carry on. Now, the Stoics were what we call pantheists, which is to say they understood God and the created world to be basically the same thing, to be one, inseparable. And so, in a sense, the Stoics argued that we all, every human being, shares the, the mind of God. But don't think of the mind of God as in sharing the mind of a personal God, the way a Christian shares the mind of Christ. No, the mind of God is, is reason, with a capital R. Deliverance comes through reason, which means embracing your lot without getting too worked up about it, without passion, without prejudice. Again, at the risk of oversimplifying, the motto of the Stoics was, it is what it is. It is what it is. And here comes Paul, and he preaches about Jesus and the resurrection. But the Greeks can't make sense of what he's saying, right? The, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. And in, in Greek, this is a feminine word. So just to give you a sense of how difficult it was for them to understand what Paul was saying, as he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection, it looks like some of them thought he's preaching about this God-man, Jesus, and this God-woman, Anastasis. 
And so they declare, who are these foreign divinities that Paul is talking about? And they want some clarification. They're curious. And so they take him to the Areopagus. How forcibly they took him, I don't know. Was it an invitation? Did they bind him? I'm not sure. It reads more like a very forceful invitation. Uh, the Areopagus is a word that, that literally means the hill of Ares, the god of war. Because the Romans, for the Romans, the god of war is Mars. And so this is why so many refer to this as Mars Hill. So the Areopagus, in a sense, is just Mars Hill. But the Areopagus came to refer not merely to a place in Athens, a, a hill, but to the organization that met there the organization that came to be known as the Areopagus, a deliberative body, kind of like a court, where they would hear people make arguments about the latest in morality or the latest in divinity or theology. They listened to cases that had to do with morals and religion. And this body, this Areopagus, gives Paul the opportunity to clarify his beliefs, to make his case. Now, whether they really wanted to be convinced or whether they just wanted to show, you know, we were told by Luke that they were really interested in the latest thing, whatever's new. We don't know how genuine it is. All we know is that Paul had the opportunity to speak, and he did not let that opportunity go to waste. That in and of itself is a good lesson for us, isn't it? How often do we actually have an opportunity to make a case for Christ? We're actually, someone just says, go ahead, what do you believe? And, you know, we start perspiring a little bit, get a little bit nervous. They rolled out the red carpet for Paul. And he took that opportunity head on. Now let's back up for just a moment. Look again at verse 16. Paul is alone in Athens. He's alone by himself. And he doesn't wait for Silas, and he doesn't wait for Timothy to arrive before he begins preaching. And why doesn't he wait? Right? I would wait. I don't want to do this alone. I've been battered and bruised in city after city. I want, you know, my posse with me. He doesn't wait. Why? Something happened in Athens that upset Paul. He saw that the city was full of idols. It was saturated. It was under idolatry. And Luke tells us Paul's spirit was provoked. His spirit was provoked. Now, that word provoked is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to describe God's reaction to the idolatry of the Israelites. So you don't need to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7, Moses writes, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. So I could go on verse after verse after verse where that word provoked is used to describe Israel's, not just their rebellion against God, but the way they rebelled against God by, by turning and, and, and giving glory to, to idols fashioned by human hands. Well, it's this idolatry in Athens that provokes Paul. But, you know, one might ask, Paul, why do you care? In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is instructing the church in Corinth, he says, look, I don't want you judging those outside the world. 
You judge those inside the world. You don't need to hold every Tom, Dick, and Harry accountable for what they do outside the church. I want your concern to be focused like a laser beam on the people inside the church. So Paul clearly had a clear distinction of his mind between those who are the people of God and those who are not the people of God. And he was quite able to say, don't worry, don't judge those who are not the people of God. But we should not take that teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 to make us think that Paul was or a Christian should be indifferent to the idolatry of the world in which we live, practiced by people, engaged in by people, owned by people who don't profess Christ to be their Savior. Paul was not indifferent to the sin of Athens. He was provoked by the sin of Athens. We should care because wherever we see idolatry, God is being robbed of his glory. God is being ignored. God is being trivialized. Now, of course, I know what you're thinking. The world can't really rob God of his glory, right? He's not uh, he's not like someone walking down the street whose pocket we can pick. I get that. But you understand the, the point. Uh, we cannot, the, the world must not treat God as if he's not glorious, as if he doesn't exist, as if he doesn't matter. Not only that, we have the ability, and the world is, and we in the church are tempted to replace God with ideas and programs and people that we use to give our lives meaning. And all of this is idolatry. And, and, and you can just imagine Paul by himself walking down the streets of Athens and he's seeing intellectual idolatry. He's seeing the idolatry of the, the sensual idol worship and he is provoked. All of it's idolatry. And it should provoke us as well. Right now, as I give examples of idolatry, some of you are going to think, well, wait a second, are you saying I can't have any fun? Well, I, I trust you have the ability to, to sort through what I'm saying in a way that's going to be helpful, but you need to recognize that, as John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. So, for example, I recognize that sports have largely been shut down now for several months, but idolatry rears its ugly head in sports when our life and our happiness begin to revolve around the sports we participate in or the sports we take in as our lives orbit that activity, the way the earth orbits the sun. What are we if not idolaters? It happens, in, so in America, what happened when sports was sort of taken away? Oh, politics was right there, ready to fill in the void. We invest our, our future hope in the next candidate, the next policy. Though the latest political news is, frankly, always in our minds. It's in our Twitter feed. It's on our Facebook pages. Politics becomes an idol. There are people in my life who I can't get past one sentence without the topic of politics coming up. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I, I worked in politics. I gave years of my life to politics. 
But when something unimportant becomes all-important, it's idolatry. It happens. Idolatry happens when sex consumes our minds, our thoughts. It controls our passions. Did you know that pornography accounts for over one-third of Internet traffic? One-third of Internet traffic is pornographic by nature. I'm not even going to get into the billions and the, the industry that is pornography. It happens with our, our bodies. Idolatry happens with our bodies. Americans spend nearly $20 billion a year on plastic surgery. We, that is to say, I'm talking about the surgery you don't really need. Bodily exercise is of some value, the Bible says. But millions of Americans are so fixated on how they look that they are effectively bowing down to the idol of themselves and their own self-image, the, the body has become your God. And so Paul walked around the city of Athens, and he saw idolatry. He saw the, the high-handed rejection of God, and he saw people who did not know God and who had sold themselves into slavery to their own passions, and it provoked his spirit. It angered him because he knew God alone is worthy of worship and glory and praise, and it devastated him to see people made in God's image giving glory to things that will never, things that aren't true and will never bring them happiness and joy. The British pastor John Stott made such an interesting observation about our motivations for evangelism. Right, if you're a Christian, I don't have to convince you to evangelize. If you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you want people around you to, coming, to come to saving faith. You can't have the Holy Spirit and not want at some level to share the gospel. And God, in his providence, has given many motivating factors to why we should share the gospel. One is just obedience. Like the Bible says, you know, you're to bear witness to Christ. The Bible says we are to share the gospel. Um, we're to make disciples of all nations. It's in the Bible, so obey. And Stott says, well, that's true. But he says there's other motivators to obedience, like compassion. Think of the way Jesus, uh, in Luke 19, uh, wept over Jerusalem. He had compassion for people who didn't know the Lord. So you think about maybe your friends or family that don't know Christ and you believe the Bible, and you believe that if they don't repent and believe, they're going to go to hell. And you have compassion for them, as, as, as well you should. Think of Paul's uh, uh, grieving over the, the state of, of his Jewish brothers who didn't know Christ in Romans 9. So obedience and compassion are legitimate motivators to sharing the gospel. But what's interesting is that Stott says that really the best motivator to evangelism is the one that we find right here in Acts chapter 17, and it is a zeal for God's glory. Because when you are convinced in your bones that God is truly worthy of worship and praise, you are going to want to see your neighbors honoring God the way he deserves to be honored. And that motivator, God, the, the motivation to see God glorified should be driving you to make much of Christ in your daily life in a way that others can see. That should be your desire. And if it's not your desire, if it's not your desire, then it must be the case that you have become numb to the things of God. 
you become like a hand that's been attached to an ice cube for much too long. So long that it can no longer feel what it ought to feel. You become numb to the things of God. So the Christian grieves when he sees the world care less about the glory of Christ than about the next election or the next game or the next toy. The Christian is provoked in his heart or her heart when God is trivialized by our neighbors who are building their lives around the American dream instead of building their lives around Christ. Don't be numb to the things of God. Warm your heart to the Lord. You need the heat of God's Spirit. You need the light of God's Word to warm your heart so that you're not numb to God, so that when you see neighbors and friends and family members and entire cultures devoted to that which is not God, your spirit, like Paul's, will be provoked and your desire will be to testify to Christ who is the King. How do we bear witness to Christ in a secular society, cultivate a zeal for God's glory? Number two, enter your neighbor's story. Enter your neighbor's story. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, as I've mentioned already, I think, Athens was a strange place, right? On one hand, there's these idols everywhere, physical representations of the gods. And on the other hand, many people are very self-reliant, right? They believe in gods. They pay lip service to the gods. But other than the, the price of their offerings and the decoration on their streets, the gods don't seem to make much of a difference in their lives. That's their story. They pay lip service to the gods, right? They, 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 put a, 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 they put a few offerings in the goblet, but insurance, don't tempt the fates, God doesn't mean much to them. That's their story, and Paul knows this. As Paul walks around the city and see all, sees all these objects of worship, he knows this, and he sees in this an opportunity to point people to Christ, and so Paul looks for, for common ground, and he finds it in their objects of worship, and especially in an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. These people are clearly very religious. They are open to God, but clearly confused about who he is. Some people think this altar to an unknown God might have simply been an altar set up years and years ago. Uh, uh, the rain comes, the hail comes, the inscription fades, they can't read it. Was it Zeus? Was it Hermes? Who was it? Oh, well, just put unknown God. And Paul sees this, and he seizes this as an opportunity to highlight their confusion and point them to the Lord. So this is a fair summary, I think, by the way, of our times. People open to religion, open to God, but confused. 
I'd say America is full of warm agnostics. Warm agnostics. Warm to the idea that God exists. Unsure it really matters. Warm agnostics. Now, one uh, author by the name of Dominic Johnson received his doctorate from Oxford University in evolutionary biology. And he's not a Christian, and in 2016, he wrote a book called God is Watching You. It's a funny title, meant to provoke and communicate a serious point. Johnson concluded that the, the vast majority of the people in the world believe that there is a God. The vast majority of people, he says, believe there is a God. And in fact, he cites a 2007 Pew study, which found 92% of Americans believe in God or a universal spirit. Now, I know there's a big difference between God and universal spirit, but 92% of Americans are affirming, in that sense, this, this supernatural. A larger study of dozens of countries around the world found that 60% of the residents of planet Earth believe not only that there's a God, but that there's a hell as well. So 60% of the people on the earth would affirm that there is some form of everlasting punishment. Now, none of this leads Johnson to believe that there actually is a God. He's an atheist, but he wants to make sense. He's troubled by this. He wants to make sense of this reality that so many people from all strata of society actually believe in God. And so, as an evolutionary biologist, he concludes that people who believe in God are more likely to have kids and then pass on their genes, the genes of people who believe in God and so forth and so on. What Johnson observed in 2017, not about the passing on the genes, but about the religiosity of the world, is simply what Paul is observing in Athens. We are and have always been a religious people, and this impulse to believe is an important part of everyone's story, right? It's for the physicist at Georgia Tech, the English major at Oglethorpe, the plumber in Kennesaw, the homemaker in Smyrna, right? There is something about all of us that sees some kind of purpose in life, but without any biblical guidance, we're just worshiping the unknown God. So... We can be tempted to think people are hostile to Christianity. This is probably not true. And we would find that out if we took the time to enter into the stories of our warm agnostic neighbors. How do we do this? How can you enter into the story of your warm agnostic neighbor? And I'll throw in the atheist as well, because I think it's true for them say three things really quickly about this. First, build a relationship. Now, you don't have to. Paul didn't build a relationship. If you want to do the street preaching, go for it. But generally speaking, it's a good idea. I encourage us to share the gospel naturally, regularly, and with a sense of urgency. And by naturally, I mean share the gospel with the people that are already in your life, right? The people God has put there, people you should be getting to know better, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your friends build a relationship. Second, ask questions. Questions demonstrate interest. They demonstrate care and concern. They allow you to enter into a person's life, 
Right, just as Paul walked around the streets of Athens to get to know this city, to see their objects of worship, to discover this altar to the unknown God, you need to, so to speak, walk around the heart of your neighbors. Ask questions that help you build a relationship with them. And as you get to know them better, as you love them as people made in the image of God, third, find common ground. Find common ground. So to, to merge, if you will, point number two and point number three, but once you've asked questions, once you've gotten to know them, maybe eventually you can ask questions like this. Do you ever pray? Do you sometimes go to church? Do you try to be a good person? Do you think your life has meaning? So my younger brother... Uh, and he wouldn't mind me sharing this with you, is an outspoken atheist. He does not believe there is a God. And he thinks that we are all basically animals who will one day disappear. Now, my younger brother is a good father. He is a great father. He loves his wife. He loves his little girls. He dotes on them. He treats them well. And when he and I talk theology, and he's probably the family member in my life who enjoys talking about theology the most, I'll, I'll, I'll often ask him, why, Adam? Why are you so caring? Why are you so kind to your girls? I see your care for them. I see your love for them. And when I, when I see it, I can't help but believe that in his heart, he knows that they are more than a mass of cells that happen to one day appear in his wife's womb. I see his love for them, and I know that in his heart, he believes that it's more than a part of an evolutionary plan to keep the species alive. That's what he says to be true, but it's not what I see. It's not what I observe. Our, our common ground is our love for our family. And when I press him hard on it, I don't think he has a really good answer as to why he's so faithful to his wife and so loving to his girls. I believe in his heart of hearts. He believes that they are humans made by God and of inestimable value. So from Athens, Greece, to Athens, Georgia, everyone has a story. Enter into that story and you'll find an opening which will allow you to bear witness to Christ. How do we bear witness to Christ in a secular world? Here's the third answer. Here's the most important answer. Proclaim the one true God. Proclaim the one true God. Now, having entered into their story, Paul now introduces them to the one true God, and what we have seen in these verses must be a summary of the message Paul delivered to the Athenians. Surely he spoke to them for more than a couple short paragraphs. What we have here, I think, in Acts 17 is really an outline, a sketch of the gospel presentation that he delivered at the Areopagus. Now, let's look at verses 24 to 31, and notice what Paul says about the one true God. We'll start in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. I'll stop there. First, God is both eternal creator and daily Lord. That's what Paul asserts. He's both eternal creator and daily Lord. He is eternal creator. Neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics believe this. 
The Stoics saw no distinction between God and creation. And the Epicureans, they, uh, they chalked up our existence to chance. But here is Paul proclaiming an eternal God who has always existed. He is the maker and we are the made. And God didn't just make us and then go off and take a nap. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He's in charge, always watching, always ruling, always engaged, always caring. I think of Psalm 118, 28. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Or Matthew 10, 29, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. Right? God is alive, he's active, he's at work, he's eternal God, and he is daily Lord. Paul asserts this. Look again at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Right, so second, God is both great and giving. Great and giving. He's eternal creator and daily Lord. He's also great and giving. God is great. Everything about worship in Athens communicated that God had been domesticated by people. They treated God like a wild dog who had been put on a short leash. And even if they didn't really believe that God could be contained by little houses on street corners or big houses on the Acropolis, they worshiped God as if he were confined to temples, like a genie is confined to a bottle. But the God of the Bible is great and big, and God's people have always known this. So when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he made sure to clarify God cannot be bottled up. How ridiculous. 1 Kings 8:27. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And when Israel tried to capture God's image in a block of wood, the Lord responded, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Right, so, if I were to commission a painting of you, if, if you came back, I'll be at the back door with my mask on after the service. If you came up to me and I said, you know what, I think you're really great. I want to commission a painting of you. You think that's pretty great. You know, cool. You know, as long as I'm six feet away, sign me up, you know, put me on a wall. God says, don't make a picture of me. Don't even think about it. You cannot begin to capture my glory in an image. Don't do it. He's, he's great to create a system of idolatry that implies in any way that his presence is relegated to these little temples is ridiculous. And God is giving. He's giving. When you realize how great God is, you realize how foolish it is to try to give him anything. But God is the giver. We are the recipients. Remember that Roman citizen I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon who woke up every morning and gave his little offerings into the little goblet? How silly it is to treat God like that. Even today, people fall into a kind of tit-for-tat theology. But we can't manipulate God by our service. We try. We say, I'll be good for God, and 
he'll do good to me. I'll pray a little bit harder, and he'll grant my request. I'll be really holy, and he'll shrink my tumor or help me pass my exam. We act as if God needs our service in order to bless him, as if God needs our works, when in reality, God is the giver of life and breath and of everything. It's good to ask God for help, for sure. It's bad to think he helps us on the basis of our goodness. We give God our entire lives, not because we're trying to win him over, but because he already won us over. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone and image formed by the art and imagination of man. Third, God is both king of kingdoms and father of all humanity. King of kingdoms and father of all humanity. Paul proclaims in verse 26 that we all come from one man. He doesn't mention the name there, but we know that to be Adam. And God made Adam. And every nation and every kingdom finds its home and its start in Adam. Adam was made by God the king, the king of the kingdoms, the ruler of the nations. And then continuing to enter the story of his neighbors, Paul cites two of their poets. Verse 28, he cites from Epimenides of Cilicia, of Crete, and Eratus of Cilicia. And both of these poets clung to this principle that's certainly true, that we live and move and have our being in God as our creator, to say even more than that, that we all, as, as people made in God's image and likeness, as descendants of Adam, we are all, in that sense, God's offspring. Right? They did not understand the depth of that truth, but at some level, by God's grace, they understood that God is near us and that, in some sense, we all come from him. And so when I say that God is the father of humanity, I don't mean he's the father of all of humanity the way he's the father of his children. Uh, Christians, but simply as the text says that we are all, every human being is God's offspring. He is the king of kingdoms and the father of all of humanity. And look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So fourth, God is both divine judge and resurrected Savior. Divine judge and resurrected Savior. So for, for most of human history, it was the nation of Israel that had God's attention. And that was the time of ignorance for Athens. But now with Paul going to the Gentiles, with God speaking in the Areopagus, with Paul speaking in the Areopagus, God's eye is now on the whole world. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. 
God is the divine judge. God holds doctors and lawyers and presidents and janitors and professors and clerks and cooks accountable for how they live and what they believe. And if you ever had a nagging feeling in your heart that you fall short of God's holiness, it's just because you do. We all do. In fact, let me go back to Dominic Johnson, our evolutionary biologist friend. This is what he concluded about that feeling that we all have that we're accountable to God. He said, whatever its exact source and characteristics, supernatural punishment seems to be a ubiquitous, that means everywhere, even universal belief. But praise be to God. He is both divine judge, which honestly everyone believes, and resurrected Savior. Who is the man by whom God will judge the world? Verse 31. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. He is the Savior crucified for the sins of his people, resurrected to prove his power over sin and death. So Paul's sermon begins with God the Creator and ends with Jesus the Savior. A.W. Tozer famously wrote that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I know that statement may be hard for you to believe. Right? In a world where premium is placed on looks, on income, on status, it can be hard to believe that these things are, are like income, status, looks, are like plastic toys at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box when compared to the permanent reality of the goodness and the glory of God himself. We can know who God really is, and we can be known by this true God. That's what Paul wants them to know. You can know, he says, who God is. You can be known by this true God. And when Paul had the opportunity to explain his faith to these, this secular audience, these religious people, he began with the nature of God. He is eternal creator and daily Lord. He is great and he is giving. He is the king of kingdoms and the father of all humanity. He is both the divine judge and the resurrected savior. And so I would just ask you, is it enough for you to know God this morning, right now? Is it enough for you to know God and to be known by this God? Is that enough for you? I have always loved the, the Wizard of Oz. Every year it came on television. That was a big deal in my family. You didn't just choose what you wanted to watch. You, you waited for what showed up on TV. And once a year, in Technicolor, the Wizard of Oz showed up on TV. And you went to the bathroom and you got, because they weren't going to stop it for you. Once a year. It was a big deal. And so we memorized it. And Dorothy and her friends wanted to reach Oz so badly to get the help of that great wizard. And when they arrived, do you, do you remember? They see this grand and terrible face and this loud and booming voice, and he wouldn't help them. And when they looked behind the curtain, they found nothing but a tiny, angry, powerless man. When they first saw him, he was something great only to find out that he was nothing. Now, the problem with the world today is that this is their experience of God. 
They begin with a vision of someone who will give them exactly what they want and what they don't get, what they conclude they want. They decide he's just like that wizard, small and impotent, all show, no substance. When God doesn't give people what they want today, they conclude either he can't or they decide he won't. And either way, he's no longer worth paying any attention to. Give him your little Sunday morning, but have nothing more to do with him. But think for a moment about what Christianity really is. Think about the biblical view of God. When the Christian thinks about God, what comes to his or her mind? He sees a cross, an ugly, bloody, wooden Roman cross. The first thing that comes to the Christian's mind when he thinks about God is something that is not very impressive at all. Nothing, certainly in the eyes of the world. But the cross means everything to us. It's on that cross that Jesus died in our place. It's from that cross that Jesus rose from the dead to save us. When Dorothy looked behind the curtain of the wizard, she found nothing. When we look, if you will, behind the curtain of the cross, we find everything. We find the one true God. We find the God of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression from sin, forgiving the iniquity of pagan Athenians in love with wooden idols. That is the God that we worship. How do we bear witness to Christ in a secular society? Cultivate a zeal for God's glory. Enter into your neighbor's story. Proclaim the one true God. And fourth and finally, realize the gospel's power. What happens when the gospel is proclaimed? Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some will mock. Uh, some will make fun of you. Uh, they will dismiss what you have to say and see what's playing next on Netflix. Some will believe, right? Men like Dionysius. I mean, I'm struck. People talk so often about this sermon at Mars Hill. I mean, I don't know if there's any other sermon in the Bible that I hear people talking about more than this sermon. And so when, when I, I'm working through the passage, and every time I come to a passage, I treat it like it's the first time I've read it, and I sort of expect just thousands came to faith, right? I mean, Paul, Paul, dealing with secular society. No, not thousands. But Dionysius the Areopagite came to faith, and a woman whom we know very, we know nothing about except what we have right here. Many people think that Dionysius went on to become the first pastor of First Baptist Athens. Maybe, we don't know for sure. Uh, we know nothing about Damaris except that she clearly turned from her idolatry and put her faith in the one true God. And a few others did as well. And if that's not awesome, you don't know what awesome is. And what did Paul do? Was he some like witty philosopher? 
No. He told them about the one true God. Hey, let me tell you about God. He made you. You don't make him. He serves you. You don't serve him. He's great. Actually, you're not. He gives. You're actually designed to receive. He's the king of all kingdoms, the ruler of all nations. By the way, he made all of you. He's the father of all humanity. And don't forget, he's the judge. I know you know that. Let me tell you, he's the judge. And let me make it absolutely clear what I mean by that. I mean that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is going to come back one day. And having atoned for the sins of his people, he's going to judge everyone. And only those who put their faith in him are going to find everlasting life. And all who rejected him in this life are going to find themselves reaping the fruit of everlasting torment. That was Paul's message. And Dionysius, the Areopagite, I mean, what would it have been like for an Areopagite to come to faith? I mean, wow. Do you get kicked off the council? I mean, what happens? Dionysius came to faith. What was it like for that young woman, Damaris, to come to faith in Jesus Christ and to join the way when the only Christian they knew was Paul? This was not a, a quickly growing church. And my question for you today is, where is Dionysius? Where is the young man, the old man, who's going to give up the American dream and follow Christ? Where are you? I mean, are you watching online in the online universe? Are you in the fellowship hall? Are you in the main hall? Where are you? Put your faith in Christ. Where's Damaris? Where's the young woman who really had nothing earthly to gain by becoming a follower of the Christian way? And yet she sided with Paul against, honestly, the smartest people in the world. Where are the Damarises of the world today? The young women, the girls, the old women who maybe for the first time in their lives are going to genuinely put their faith in Christ. We don't make God. God made us. We don't fundamentally serve God. God serves us in Christ. We are not the judge of God. God is the judge of us. We are not the saviors of the world. In Christ, God is our Savior. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We praise you for being who you are, our great and giving God. We recognize our daily temptation to find satisfaction, hope, joy, sustenance, in trivial things. And Lord, we confess that our spirit is not as provoked as it should be about the idolatry around us. We praise you that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, that you can give us a deeper, greater, wider zeal for your glory, and that we can trust the proclamation of your gospel to save sinners. Help us, O oh Lord, to worship you more powerfully, more passionately than we ever have before. Raise up another generation of Dionysiuses and Demaruses that your church may grow with people who love you 
for the first day in their lives. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.